A quick, uh, a quick owl update this morning. Uh, continues to be a bit of a roller coaster uh, over this last week, um, with probably a few more downs than ups. Uh, so it's been challenging for Char and the family, um, but there are still indications of progress. Uh, they did take him out of ICU yesterday, um, so that is progress. Uh, ben and Norma were over yesterday and today. I think Carol Evans is going over today. Um, so that will be helpful for Charlotte. Um, and we'll just continue to update um, as we get them. Um, continue praying for them. Uh, also, if you have your weekly, daily prayer list in front of you, um, we probably ought to mention uh, Tom and Allie also. Tom leaves for Academy tomorrow. Uh, and they just had a baby. So I think maybe grandparents are going to have to step up and hold the baby some more. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but um, the plan is for Tom to be home on weekends, um, but he'll be gone during the week, so let's add a little, uh, little extra pressure on them, so um, keep them in your, in your prayers as well. Um, and we're jumping into chapter 6 this morning, the book of Revelation, um, but before we do, I feel like I should have a clicker up here somewhere. Why is all the stuff gone? Anybody seen our clicker? We'll find one. Um, I'm just going to say click, and then whatever needs to happen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so uh, a very brief uh, recap. We're going to uh, reestablish our scriptural context here before we proceed. Uh, so, very briefly, the book of Revelation starts with a vision to John. We remember it's a, it's a vision of, really, Jesus himself. Um, and he tells John to write these letters to the churches. Uh, and essentially, the primary recurring theme of all the letters to all the churches was persevere. Endure till the end. Continue to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Correct those spiritual issues that you're having. Correct the issues that you need to correct. Um, that, that are causing you to stumble so that you can persevere. And each of those seven letters ends with a promise. They all said, to the conqueror, or to the one who conquers, or to those who, who hold fast to the end. And then there's kind of a, a various ways it's stated, various promises like, I'll give you the crown of life, I'll grant you to eat from the tree of life, um, I'll give you authority to rule forever. They all kind of boil down to the same thing. You'll spend eternity in paradise with God. If, if you do these things, if you persevere, that's the promise. So withstand the tribulations, the persecutions that will come as a result of being a Christ follower, and you'll be victorious for eternity, no matter how it may look or how it may feel now, because it does not look or feel that way now. And then, so those are the first couple of chapters, and then as if to prove those claims, as if, as if to um, lend extra credence to those promises, John's next vision is of heaven. He, he has this vision of the throne room, and he sees God seated on the throne, and in his right hand is this scroll with seven seals. And only Jesus, it turns out, only Jesus, who symbolically appears as a slaughtered lamb, only Jesus is worthy and capable of removing the seals and opening the scroll. So there's kind of the, the plot so far. The church, which consists of all believers in all ages, is told to persevere. You've got to work through the trials and tribulations. Hold fast to your faith. Because trial and temptation and persecution will come. Satan's going to attack. 
But then we're shown God on his throne, and we're, and we're, we're reminded that he is still in control. God is in control of all of it. With Jesus at his side, carrying out the will of the Father, and then he, we're, we're shown, we're told about this scroll that, that represents God's plan. This is a, the strategy for God's plan of human history. This is his redemptive roadmap that spans the ages, all contained in this scroll that is sealed up. And we don't know what the plan is. We're not going to be told what the plan is just yet. But the Lord calls us to endure and to hold fast to our faith. And as the seals are open now, we begin to see, we're, begin, we're shown uh, some hint, some idea as to what it is we have been and what we are being called to endure. But we're always to keep in mind this idea that God is in control. History is unfolding according to his plan. Jesus is the executor of the plan. It's Jesus who cracks open these seals. So, chapter 6 and beyond, this is usually the point where the varying interpretations begin to diverge onto various paths. Um, Chapter 6 and beyond becomes highly symbolic, which just by its nature allows for a variety of approaches and and interpretations and thoughts and opinions. And so our goal moving forward is not going to be so much to compare and contrast competing theories. Um, We're going to try to stay true to what is in the text and try not to bring a whole bunch of other stuff into it. Now, where it's helpful, we may discuss other interpretations, other approaches, if it helps bring clarity to the passage. But our goal is to try to rely on Scripture alone as much as possible, not to debate all of the other ideas. There's time for that outside of Sunday morning. We're, we're, we're happy to do that. We're happy to have those discussions. But here we're going to try to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So it seems like we probably ought to pray before we proceed. <clears throat> uh, Father, we are grateful this morning. I, I am grateful for this long history of Christian songwriters, for those people who have been gifted, talented with the, um, the ability to write music and to write words that speak to our hearts and speak to our souls, and, and especially those who seem to have this extra um, spiritual leading to write words of such depth and meaning, like the, the song Mighty. Uh, Lord, it just... It, it, it causes us to, it forces us to reflect on you as the almighty God. And this is just so helpful as we go through our days and lives here on this earth. So thank you for how those, those songs have already prepared us for what we're going to hear this morning. We're grateful for the, um, this text that you've laid out for us, even though it doesn't answer all of our questions. In fact, it may cause a few more questions. Um, we pray that we are faithful to the text as we go forward, that I don't say things that, that you don't want me to say, that people don't hear things that I'm not saying. Um, and that we uh, really take a good, honest look at what, what is in the text and help us come to a, a more fruitful and faithful understanding of what it is you want us to know. We pray that you be with our time here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start off by reading these first eight verses of chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. 
And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So we won't spend much time here, not much going on. <clears throat> so let's, let's first set the scene. Let's establish and notice who is in charge. It is Jesus. It is the Lamb who opens the seals. Not the full scroll, but the seals on the scroll. Perhaps you've seen these pictures of this rolled-up scroll, and there's usually just one, maybe two, kind of waxy seals to keep it closed. It's, only, it's intended to only be opened by the person to whom it's addressed. Um, that seal carries the authority of the one who sent the message. Um, it's pretty unusual for a scroll to have seven seals. This is for impact. This is making a statement. This is showing us that God has got this elaborate plan set, Jesus knows what it is. They're in control of this whole thing. And as the seals are removed, we're not yet being told the full and final version of God's plan from this unrolled scroll. But we are going to be given some insights as to what will happen or what has already been happening throughout human history. And this is symbolized by the seals, by the removal of the seals. So as Jesus opens the seals, we're told that each of the four creatures, remember those four strange angelic head of eagles and six wings and eyes all over, each of those four creatures in turn pronounces, you know, says, come, and that introduces the next, the next horse and rider, a voice like thunder. So this is noticeable. Now, I'm not entirely sure of the significance of the fact that each of the four creatures takes a turn saying come. I'm not sure what that means, but it, it does give us the impression, I think, of some kind of command and control structure. Whatever's happening, whatever's taking place here seems really well organized. It seems really well planned, strategized even. So it's like a, a military-like power structure from God to Jesus to the four creatures. God has established and controls this plan. Jesus is the faithful executor of the plan, and the four creatures all get in line to do their duty, to pronounce these four horsemen. Now, I think it's also interesting to point out here that these four horses are very reminiscent of a vision that we also read in Zechariah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze, the first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So, four different colors, four different horses, just as we see here in Revelation. These clearly are also under the command and control of the Lord. The four in Zechariah are sent out, it says, to the four winds of heaven. Now, the word that's translated wind can also be translated spirit, which is just kind of interesting. Verse 8, just a few verses later, verse 8 says that after these four horses go out, they patrol the earth. 
And the giver of this vision, the Lord says that they have set my spirit, capital S, the Lord says they've set my spirit at rest. So this seems to suggest that these four horses in Zechariah are set out under the command of the Lord by the spirit of the Lord to bring about the will of the Lord. So if we use scripture to try to make sense of scripture, I think we're seeing a similar pattern here in Revelation. These four horsemen are sent out to the earth to direct and influence human events according to the plan and will of the Lord. So what perhaps Zechariah predicted, John is now seeing fulfilled in his vision. Now another key element, another thing we need to pay attention to is the timing of this scene and, and, and the key players involved. We cannot miss the fact that the opening of the seals only occurs, apparently only can occur, with the appearance of the lamb that has been slain. Only Jesus is worthy. And he's worthy at least in part because he was slain but is no longer dead. He's proved his worthiness through his power over death. So the events that John is going to be describing here, the events of these horsemen, seem to begin just after Jesus has escaped the tomb and received the crown. He's now back in heaven. So what follows is this post-resurrection, first-century church, all of these events start to begin to occur after Jesus' resurrection and continue through to Jesus' second coming. That seems to be the time period that's being laid out here. And we don't have any more information than that yet. We're not being told anything else about the time period other than it's a resurrected Jesus, and there's going to be a, an end to it at some point. So any other breakdown in time periods or anything else that we try to impose at this point has to come from someplace else. It's not contained in this text. This will make more sense as we go through it. So John is now watching as these four seals are being opened, and he hears one of the four creatures say, come, and he sees a white horse. And the writer has a bow and a crown, which was given to him, it says. So presumably, this is given to him by God. God's the one in control here. Given by God, given by Jesus, pronounced by one of these four angels. So whatever power, whatever authority, whatever ability this writer has was given to him by God. And the rider of the white horse came out conquering and to conquer. That's present and future tense. Now we're not told who is being conquered. We're not told what is being conquered. Just there's conquering. So this is very broad. This is very general description. The white, because the white, white rider has now been released, there is going to be conquering and conquests. Now, this is a pretty fascinating image. I mean, all four of these are really quite amazing. But admittedly, there's not an awful lot here offered in the way of detailed information. There's a white horse. The rider's got a crown and a bow. And we know that a bow was uh, an instrument for hunting, but also for battle, although probably not the best weapon for battle, right? You pick off one guy at a time. With a nice sword, maybe you can get two or three guys in a good, healthy swing. So this rider comes out to conquer, but the, the bow seems to suggest that the, the, the conquering is, is limited. It, it's, not, uh, it, it's a restrained capacity. 
according to the will of the Lord. Now, again, if we confine ourselves to the text as, as it exists, that's all we know for sure about this first writer. But this is where it starts to get interesting. Uh, even though we have really very little to go on in this description, there's an incredible number of interpretations as to what this first writer means, what all these four of these writers mean. Some have suggested that this first writer is Christ himself, because Jesus is also pictured in chapter 19 on a white horse. But apart from the matching horse color, the descriptions are really quite different. So I don't find that to be a really plausible argument. The rider on the white horse in chapter 19 is really described in a way that clearly describes Jesus, and Jesus has a sword coming from his mouth, not a bow. So I don't really find this plausible, the argument that this is Jesus. But to show you the, the variety of interpretations here, on one hand, you have those who say, this is Jesus on the white horse, and on the other hand, you say, no, this is, uh, this is the Antichrist. So we go from Christ to Antichrist in interpretations on this same image, the same symbol. But when you look at how the Antichrist is described throughout the rest of Revelation, that doesn't really match up with this description either. So I don't find that argument very compelling. Some suggest that this white horse and the rider represent the gospel being spread throughout the world. It's conquering sin. Conquering doubt. Maybe. Some say it represents hope. Perhaps. But based on the information contained here, we really can't say for sure what this represents other than conquest. Conquering. So wherever we land on trying to understand this white horse, we pretty much have to agree that it's a symbolic depiction of, well, something. I mean, even if we're not sure what that something is. So short of a clear and compelling argument, scriptural argument, I think we're better off not trying to force an identity on this writer. It may just stand for conquest in general. Man's desire to conquer that's, all we, that's probably all we can agree on. So then we move on to the second seal. The second seal is open. The second living creature says, come. And a bright horse shows up. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Resulting in the fact that people are going to kill each other. That's essentially what it says. Now this rider was given a sword. So that's more a, a, a battle instrument. Uh, it's a symbol of war and conflict. But again, we have very limited information. It's hard to draw any big conclusions from this other than conquest and war kind of seem to go together. The third seal is opened, and it results in a third horse and a third rider. This is a black horse with a rider holding a pair of scales in his hand. Now, typically, we often think of scales in connection with justice. You know, Our Lady of Justice, she's blindfolded and holding scales, so... Um, she can rightly judge good and evil. But here, the scale is related to commerce. Scales were also used for measurements in the marketplace. And we know this is about commerce because it tells us. John sees this horse, and then he hears what seems to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. That's weird. A quart of wheat 
for denarius, three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So what we, what we see here is this, this refers to the price of goods based on weight. Hence the scales. We're weighing this out to establish the price. So the meaning of this may not be uh, immediately obvious. We have to dig just a little bit, but not very deep. A little digging shows that this seems to be symbolic, representative, but maybe a poetic way of saying things are going to get bad. The economy is going to sour. Your level of comfort with your economic status is going to be upended. And we're not just guessing at that. I mean, based on these specific examples given, we know that at that time, a quart of wheat for denarius reflects a price that was eight to ten times higher than normal. We're talking about extreme price increase. Greatly inflated prices. And this affects both wheat and barley, so it's not just a bad crop one year. This is a significant decline in food supply. They might have even had food so supply chain issues. We don't know. So the effects of this third rider will be that money is going to be devalued and scarcity is going to become a real concern. Now perhaps the bad economy is the fallout from the effects of the white and the red horses. Conquest and war. That inevitably leads to challenges with trade and commerce and supply. And we're seeing this played out in real life right now. Right? This conflict, conquest between Russia and Ukraine, oil and grain supplies and prices are being heavily impacted. So this warning moves beyond the hypothetical. This, this is true. This is what happens. But it's interesting the voice also says, do not harm the oil and wine. Again, it's difficult to say with any real certainty what this refers to. I mean, some suggest that, that during times of economic uncertainty, the poor tend to be impacted more than the wealthy. So this is the, they, they say this is the wealthy crying out, protect our luxury items, protect our wine, make sure we have oil for our, for our lamps. I mean, charge us more for barley and wheat. We got money but don't affect our supply of oil and wine. Maybe. Again, we can't say with any real certainty. But based on what is here, it's not difficult to think just back to our recent pandemic activity. When businesses were deemed essential or non-essential, many were forced to close. Owners lost their income. We had and still have supply chain issues. There is extreme economic upheaval. But even during the worst of those days, liquor stores and weed stores were allowed to remain open. Per capita drinking went up. I mean, a fair amount. So perhaps the pattern here is when times are bad, when food is tight, when money is worth less, whatever you do, don't take away our anesthetizers. Let us self-medicate. Keep us in oil and wine, and then we can make it through. Maybe. Can't say for sure. But it's, it's interesting. You know, we, we saw this, this change in our, in our drinking behavior. Um, and unless, uh, so that we don't make the, the mistake that, well, 
Scripture clearly says that Jesus is coming on Thursday. Now, we've just had all of this stuff, right? It has to be soon. There's an interesting story from, a, from 92 AD. Uh, a, a severe grain shortage, and the Roman emperor Domitian ordered the removal of vineyards so that more grain could be planted. And there was such a backlash, riots, that he had to rescind the order. People would rather have wine than grain. Maybe they thought Jesus was coming Thursday too. I don't know. So without giving into extreme speculation here, I think we can safely say the big idea here is that economies are not reliable. Food supplies can and will be affected by global unrest. Money can and will be manipulated. It will remain volatile. And history shows that this has been true throughout time. Well, then the fourth seal brings out a pale horse. And, and the, the word that, that is uh, translated pale, some suggest might actually be better defined as, as pale green. It's a pale green horse, as in, you know, like the skin of a corpse. Which kind of makes sense, because the writer's name was Death, and Hades followed this writer. Now remember, this, this is a vision, so, so what John is describing is, is a, a personification, probably some kind of physical representation of death, and Hades following it. Now in the New Testament, Hades refers to the, what they, they described as the place of the dead. Uh, it's, it's the the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Sheol. It's, it's, it's where the, the dead were held. So the combination, the collaboration here of, of the writers, Death and Hades, this is meant to be fairly troubling and dark for us, which it is. It goes on to say that Death and Hades were given authority over a fourth of the earth. So 25% of the earth's inhabitants were affected by the writers on the fourth horse. And these deaths were attributed to well, really, the effects of the first three horses. Uh, there's, uh, they're killed by the sword, so there's conquest and war. They die as a result of famine, so the third rider brings along with it food scarcity and, and bad economies. And, and it says some will die from pestilence. And pestilence, you know, that's interesting because that just means an infectious, virulent, devastating disease. Even the wild animals will be used to kill and destroy inhabitants of the earth. So when you consider all the effects of all four of these horses, it seems as though that much, if not all, of life is going to be impacted in one way or another. It's almost as though the whole earth groans and suffers through these events, under the, under the weight of the activity of these four colored horse riders. So the opening of these first four seals, and we're going to look at the next two next week, the opening of these four uh, signifies, signifies or symbolizes a number of things, I think, but primarily what they represent is that the world at some point in time is going to become a difficult place to live. There's going to be a general lack of peace uh, that leads to conquests and, and wars and, and seemingly unending conflicts. There's going to be varying degrees of economic and commercial turmoil and, and civilization upheaval, famine, pestilence, and death. Which then begs the question, but when 
will these things occur? Now, as I said, this is where differences of opinion begin to crop up. Uh, I would refer you back to your four views handouts that we gave a couple months back to, to, to look at the various viewpoints. So I'm going to try to lay some, some groundwork here um, for our approach and how we're going to deal with this. Uh, the prevailing view of the evangelical church over the last 150 years or so is what's been called the futurist view. The futurists, which include the, the rapture, pre, mid, post, all of those people are included in the futurist group. Um, they have made the interpretive decision that revelation is meant to be taken literally until there's some, some part that just doesn't make sense literally, and then they have, to, they have to deal with it symbolically. But their approach is to take it literally. So the opening of these seals from the futurist view announces or indicates the beginning of the tribulation period. Once these seals are opened, that's when all this bad stuff begins to happen. Now, they have further identified, most of them in that group, they've identified a literal seven-year period just prior to Jesus' return as the tribulation period. So, and again, the literal, literal approach says that any, any number has to mean that thing. So seven years equals seven years, three and a half equals three and a half years. Those numbers show up in later chapters, and so they take those numbers, they have to have some meaning for them, and they apply them, come back and apply them to at least in part to this section here. This becomes the basis for their end times timeline and, and their chronology. Now, a lot of well-known pastors and theologians hold this position. We do not see this as an issue that affects our salvation. We want to try and stay true to Scripture. It's okay for us to discuss our differences here. It's okay for us to discuss various ways to approach this. We're not going to let it become divisive for us. We're going to approach this in a way that makes the most sense to us. Al and, and Randy and I sat down for, I don't know how many hours, leading into this and kind of laid out our direction here. Now, as we just saw from, from those verses in the early part of chapter 6, there's very little detail provided in those, in those verses. I mean, apart from a, a physical description of the riders and the horses— and what it is they're about to achieve, there's nothing there about time. There's no reference to days or times or millenniums or anything else in there. The only thing we can say about time is that the opening of the seals has to start post-resurrection because of the symbolic presence of the slain lamb. So the futurists would kind of look ahead, really. They have to go a few chapters later into Revelation and find those timestamps and then come back and try to apply them here. And following a literal interpretation, um, again, this is most futurist. You'll find some, some variation in all of these categories. But the, 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 the rapture group, for the most part, also believes that the seals, trumpets, and bowls all play out in a linear fashion. Because we read first about the seals, and then we read about the trumpets, and then we read about the bowls, they have to occur in that order. It's very linear because that's the order it goes in the text. Our understanding, our approach, falls more in line with the idealist view, which was really more prevalent prior to 150 years ago. Um, 
And it suggests or takes the position that Revelation, since it's presented as a vision, should be considered more spiritual allegory, more than literal facts. These things will happen, but we're not given a lot of detail. We're just kind of given a general sense of things. And understanding this as spiritual allegory is not without precedent in Scripture. When you think about Jesus teaching, how many times did he teach a significant message with the use of a parable? He told a narrative story that was intended to be understood in an entirely different way. We see Revelation largely working in that same vein. So the scenes that are being described here are largely figurative, meaning that they're they're pointing to some larger spiritual meaning, which means I think we need to exercise caution by trying to read too much into the text. Basing our understanding on Scripture as much as possible, So we would say, for the most part, that when we read days and years and a millennium, even a thousand years, that doesn't necessarily mean days, years, or a thousand years. What it might suggest is that when we're we're being given a number like three and a half years and then a number like a thousand years, those are meant to be understood in, in relative terms. So three and a half years is a shorter period of time than a thousand years. So those events are going to cover a shorter period of time than the millennium. doesn't mean necessarily that tribulation starts January 1st, 2000 and ends December 31st, 2007. Seven calendar years. So I think from our more idealist perspective, we would agree that the opening of the seals signifies the beginning of tribulation. But we would disagree, I think, with the futurists on the timing of that. Our period of tribulation doesn't last seven years. Our period of tribulation started when Jesus began opening the seals just after his resurrection. We've been living in this period of tribulation. In fact, just based on the text itself, we would argue that the horses and riders have been released and are currently doing their jobs. They have been active since Jesus was resurrected. I think that's the clearer picture that's been painted without adding any extra detail to it. (sighs) Let me ask you this question. At what point in human history have there not been conquests and wars? At what point in human history have we not had economic disparity and collapses? At what point have we not had plagues and famine and death? Clearly, there is no time. This has all been active, but probably amplified since Jesus' resurrection. This is the period that we've been living in. Our own experience tells us that the effects of the four horsemen, conquest and war and economic turmoil and death, that represents our current reality. And the reality of every culture that that has existed, certainly from Jesus' time until now. Now, we'll see as we go through these next few chapters that there are levels, there are degrees, there are are changes in order of magnitude of tribulation and woe. We'll see it especially as we deal with the trumpets and the bowls. So the opening of the seals may well indicate the beginning of a period of tribulation, but based solely on the text that is before us, I think we can safely say that we're living in a period of tribulation. This matches our our experience. Now, 
where we have, I think the West has been more adoptive of the futurist viewpoint because we've been more protected. We haven't faced the extreme persecution that other parts of the world have been. That's thinking about that is one of the th one of the things over the years that has caused me to rethink my position on this. Christians have been being persecuted and killed for thousands of centuries. If you have not read Fox's Book of Martyrs or something similar, they've died horrific deaths. We haven't seen that same kind of activity here. So we tend to think that we're going to be protected from the real bad persecution and trial that's going to come later. I don't think that's the case. I think it just hasn't come here yet. We're facing an entirely different kind of temptation. But we're not seeing physical torture, for example. But this has been going on from, from the beginning, I think amplified from the time of Jesus' resurrection because Satan then knew his time is limited. He's got to get to work. He doesn't have the power he thought he had. His timeline will be cut short. And I think that's why the letters to the seven churches have the exact same resonance, the exact same meaning for us now as they did for them then. We're experiencing the same kind of tribulation. We have been experiencing conquests and wars and famine and, and economic uncertainty. And in the midst of all of this, we are still being called to remain faithful. We're still being called to hold fast to our faith, to continue to walk in a worthy manner, even as we face all of these difficulties. This more closely aligns to our human and spiritual experience. And I think this is consistent with Scripture. Now, as long as we're laying this all out here, I'm just going to go ahead and say this too. I think it, it, it is further our position, um, and not just ours, there, there's solid historical precedence for this, that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls all describe the same events, but from various perspectives, various viewpoints. We'll provide more evidence, more justification for this as we go. The, the futurist view is that Revelation is chronological. It goes through in order. So you've got to get through all the seals to get to the trumpets, to get to the bowls. The idealist view is that these are all different presentations of the same events. It's like if you're watching a movie and they'll show the same scene from different cam camera angles. You get different views, different perspectives on the same thing. Again, there, there's, there's not just historical, but there's biblical precedence for this also. Think about what we know about the life of Jesus. What do we know? It's based on four Gospels. Are they identical? They are not. They all serve to tell the same story, but they come at it from different perspectives, different approaches. They even have, they were written for different audiences. They're not identical but they all fit together to tell us the story. I think that's similar to what we're seeing here in Revelation. And this would explain, again, we'll see this more as we go through, why there are so many similarities between the seals and the trumpets and the bulls. Now, over time, because we've been in this tribulation period for quite some time, there are increasing and decreasing periods of intensity from the time of Jesus' resurrection until now. It might look something like this. There have been highs and there have been lows. 
So as the seals and the trumpets and the bowls have already been in play, we have seen these significant swings throughout history. We have world wars, but we've had global revivals. We've had holocausts, and we've had great awakenings. We've had major conflicts, and we've had extended periods of relative peace for most of the world. We've had periods of very active earthquake and hurricane activity and prolonged periods of lesser earthquake and hurricane and weird weather activity. The whole earth continues to groan, waiting for the return of the Lord, waiting the return of the king. Now, based on what we're going to see in Revelation, we would expect that intensity range to continue to increase as we get closer to Jesus' return. I think that's what we'll see. So we believe that the text indicates that we're going to continue to see an increase in these events as we get closer to the end. It ultimately is going to lead to an all-out battle between good and evil, between Satan and Jesus. That's what's portrayed in chapter 19. This will come to an end. I think this is one of the reasons we believe that what we read here in chapter 6 is really kind of broad in scope. It's starting to point us in a direction. We're not given a lot of details about who these writers are or how they're going to go about doing what it is they're going to do. But we're being shown an overview of how our life on earth is currently being impacted by evil, by the result of sin. Impacted by Satan, who's going to do everything possible to upend God's will for mankind which is contained on the scroll. So in context, this starts to paint, I think, a more compelling narrative that the big picture is that church followers of Christ from all ages, you need to hold firm. You need to stand fast. You need to persevere and endure. This is what we're facing from our collective enemy. We have to be prepared for it. Satan will use wars and famines and economic collapse to get you to fall away from your faith. He'll destroy your 401k in a heartbeat if it causes you to question your faith. But remember, he's only doing what God allows him to do. He's limited in his scope. He's limited in his power. He is limited in the time he has to achieve all of this. So hold firm. Even if you die in this life, you'll be victorious in the next. So what I've begun to describe here is a, probably a little different way of thinking about the book of Revelation. We hope and pray that it will become clearer as we go forward and we begin to see more of it. But please continue to study and pray and read on your own. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to disagree. We'll cheerfully point out your mistakes. <laughs> but I would say this. In your studying and in your reading, read something other than Tim LaHaye. Read what the Bible has to say about this. Use Scripture to, to interpret Scripture. And the same goes for us. We're trying to do the same thing. And it's okay for you to call us out and make sure we're getting it close to right. 
Even if we have a different understanding of where it ends up, at least we're looking at the same scripture in the same text. So continue to challenge us, because you're going to continue to be challenged as we go forward. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we are grateful for these uh, challenging texts. It, it, as overwhelming as it seems to be most of the time, it is still uh, encouraging that you're at least trying to give us some sense of this life and this world and, and what it means and what you call us to. So I pray that you give us clarity of thought as we read and study. Give us open hearts and open minds to hear what, what it is you have for us, that we're not being swayed by somebody else's thoughts or opinions, but we listen to the prompting of the Spirit and how we, we are to understand this. Again, this does not affect our, our salvation, but I think it may well impact how prepared we are to deal with the challenges in our own life. We are called to persevere and endure because life will be hard. So I pray that you continue to speak to us individually, collectively. Help us get better at holding fast to our faith, standing firm in your word, which will then encourage us to share the faith with others around us. If we are going to face darker times, there'll be so many people looking for hope. Lord, we believe we have the source of hope. So give us wisdom, give us grace, give us courage as we interact with all those around us. We thank you for your love for us, your willingness to be patient with us. In Jesus' name, amen.